0: That song is much easier to sing than to live out, isn't it? It is. To surrender all to the Lord. Well, first, before I started, I wanted to uh, give a shout out to all the people, I didn't mention them, that are uh, viewing us today on YouTube, streaming in. You'd be surprised. We, uh, I think, on average, uh, have about 40 views every week. It's watching the service. So to all you people out there, I know Chris Foltz is at the hospital. We're thinking of you and many others that couldn't be here today. We're glad you're here to worship with us. And especially glad for all of you here uh, this morning. You know, it's kind of hard for me to pick, as I mentioned this before, sermon topics when I'm, I'm only doing them every, you know, few months. When You have the whole Bible to pick from. And, you know, I haven't been able to preach from the Gospels for a few years. And the challenge I had was, you know, Joe's going through the Gospel of Luke. And if you're familiar with the Gospels, uh, Luke, Mark, and Matthew are what we call the synoptic Gospels. And they they have pretty much a lot of the similar material. So finding something uh, that where Joe's not going to cover was a challenge. But I was able to go into the Gospel of John Uh, This morning, and I'm going to be speaking of something I've been thinking about uh, lately about uh, knowing God and eternal life. And it's a beautiful verse. And uh, the title of my sermon this morning is The Gift of Eternal Life. And I have a subtitle, The Gift That Keeps On Giving. And my scripture reading this morning comes from uh, John chapter 17, verses 1 through 3. Uh, This is in the upper room, we call this the high priestly prayer that Jesus uh, prayed for his disciples right before he was scheduled to go to the Garden of Gethsemane and then eventually to uh, the cross, to die on the cross for our sins. So let's, let's hear God's word this morning. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. May God add his blessing to his holy word. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time now in our service where we hear your word. And Lord, we want to hear from you. We want to hear from your Holy Spirit. I pray, Lord, that you would take these words that I speak now and illumine our hearts and our minds and our thoughts and give us a greater understanding, awareness of who you are. And Lord, if there's someone here today that does not know you, I pray that you would even cause them to be born again to that living hope that we all enjoy in Jesus Christ. We ask these things in Jesus' name, Amen. Well, one of the first verses you probably learned as a Christian, and most of you have memorized, the very f- a familiar one is what John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting or eternal life, depending on if you use the King James, right? What is eternal life? What did Jesus mean by eternal life in his prayer? Because he kind of defined it some ways. He put some parameters on that. And we'll talk, talk about that. You know, there is scant mention of eternal life in the Old Testament. There's a few verses in Job and some in Isaiah and some in Psalms. Uh, we know, for you that have been in my uh, Hebrews class, we know that Abraham and Moses and Joseph... We're looking forward to that eternal city. They, they knew there was something out there, but there's not a lot in the Bible. Probably Daniel 12 says, uh, provides us the clearest insight, and it says, But at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found, written in the book, and many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt." You see, it's in the New Testament, more specifically in the Gospel of John, that the idea of eternal life is most fully developed. And the words we get come from the mouth of Jesus. John, more than the other Gospels, provide most of Jesus' words concerning eternal life. Interestingly, Matthew, Mark, and Luke combined mention it uh, only 10 times, whereas John alone mentions it 17 times. Let's listen to a few of Jesus' words from John. We've already uh, talked about John 3.16. In John chapter 4, in Jesus' encounter with the woman at the well, it says this, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And then later in chapter 5, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who has sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. John six forty. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. And then one of my favorites, John 10, 27, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will not perish. And no one, listen to this, no one will snatch them out of my hand. Isn't that a beautiful promise? No one could snatch you out of his hand. And then we have our text this morning, and this is eternal life that they know you the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you sent. I've got four points this morning. Number one, the giver of eternal life. Number two, the recipients of eternal life. Number three, the gift of eternal life. And then finally, number four is my application, knowing Christ more, knowing Christ more. But before we dive into this a little bit, I need to give you a little bit more context about the Upper Room Discourse, okay? John chapter 17, where we read from, is the final chapter in what's called the Upper Room Discourse, which covers John 13 through 17. The Discourse is what Jesus told his disciples on the night before the crucifixion while they were observing the Last Supper, the Passover, in the Upper Room. John captures quite a bit of Jesus' teaching in these chapters that we don't find in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Well, here are a few particulars, what's going on, background. Judas has left the room to betray Jesus. Jesus has washed the disciples' feet. Jesus gives them a new commandment, says that you love one another as I have loved you. He tells them not to be troubled in their hearts because he goes to prepare a place for them. It's up there where he says, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He tells them that he is the true vine and that they are the branches. He promises to give them a helper, the Holy Spirit. You know, but that, by the way, that's where we learn most about the Holy Spirit is, up, is in the book of John. He tells them that the world is going to hate them. He foretells Peter's denial. And then finally, and most jarring to them, he tells them he is going away to leave them. But he caveats it. He says, you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn to joy. And it would be moments later that he will walk to the Garden of Gethsemane. He will be betrayed by Judas. And then a, so, a couple of days later, he would be crucified on the cross. And he begins his prayer. He is praying to the Father, and the disciples are listening. They have just taken the Lord's supper. Think about this: they've received a fire hose of teaching from their master, who they've walked with for three years, and he's leaving them. Put yourself in their shoes. What are you feeling? A bit, a bit overwhelmed, confused, scared. Wondering what just hit you. you? Yeah, you enjoyed a great meal with him, and you, enjoy, you just got all this teaching, and he's telling you he's leaving you. Would you be able to concentrate on that prayer that he's praying? Well, I'm glad John concentrated on it, because he captured it right, and wrote it down for us so that we can see it today. Jesus wanted them to hear him praying for them. And you know, today, Jesus is praying for us. It says that in Romans 8.34, He sits at the right hand of the Father, interceding for you and for me. That should bring us great encouragement. He is there praying for us. When we're going through difficult times, when we're going through periods of uncertainty or confusion, He's praying for us. He's interceding for us. All right, so that's our background. Let's get to the points. Number one, we'll go through these quickly, especially the first few. The giver of eternal life. Who is the giver of eternal life? Well, Jesus is the giver of eternal life. But notice, the authority to give eternal life has been given to Him from the Father. You know, when you look at the Trinity in the Bible, we see that as separate persons, they have different roles and authority, despite being one in substance and power and eternity. Jesus makes note of this in John chapter 5. He said, the son does nothing on his own initiative. He says, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. So the father sends the son, right? For God so loved the world that he sent his only son. The son came to give eternal life. Jesus came to seek and save the lost. Jesus came to save sinners, give us salvation. He came to give us life and life more abundantly. The Father and the Son are both involved with the giving of eternal life. That's pretty straightforward. We know that. So he's the giver of eternal life. The Son sent by the Father. Now let's look at the second. Who are the recipients? Who are the recipients of eternal life? Well, verse 2 says that. Verse 2 says the ones that the Father gives him. Look at the prayer. To give eternal life to all whom you, the Father, have given him. So the recipients are those who the Father gives him. You know, this isn't the first time you see this idea, the ones that the Father has given to him. Earlier in John chapter six, Jesus says to them, all that the father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out for I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing. There's that word that he should lose nothing of all, listen, that he has given me. But raised it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. And you will see this idea of those who've been given to him further on in Jesus' high priestly prayer in chapter uh, 17, verse 6. And if you haven't uh, read it, I would encourage you to read it. Uh, the, chapter 17, in fact, the whole discourse uh, especially now we're coming up towards Easter, right? Because that's, that's all that Jesus is teaching right before the crucifixion. Excuse me. Paul picks up on this same idea in his letter to Ephesians 1 about the Father and the Son involved in our salvation, how it came. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as He chose us. He chose Chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Jesus said, no one comes to the Father but by me. Jesus is the only way to God, the Father. Jesus alone has the power to give the knowledge of God. That is the gift of eternal life. So the recipients of eternal life are those whom God gives the Son. And no one can snatch them out of his hand. Now let's look a little bit at the gift of eternal life. What is it? What does scripture say about it? And more specifically, what did Jesus mean about it in his prayer? Well, what do you think of when I say eternal life? Have you uh, thought about it much? Do you think about it at all? Most of us just thinks it means living forever and ever and ever, right? I remember when I was a kid... And the idea of eternal life was like, so I don't want to live that long. I just, you know, just give me 80 years, I'll be happy. <laughs> you know, when you're like, you know, 10, 11, you're like, 80, I don't want to live forever. But, you know, having crested 60 on my way to 80, eternal life sounds pretty good, right? <laughs> Nobody wants to die. I mean, there are very few, but most people want to live, right? And as you get older, you want to live longer. I have another sermon I preach for. We'll have new bodies, right? One day that's when we're living eternally with Jesus. But eternal life is not just living forever. It's so much more. Because by the way, unbelievers will live forever in hell, separated from God. We don't like to talk about that. You know, that's not preached very much today, but the Bible speaks a, a lot about that. There are many passages which teach that both believers and unbelievers will live forever. Paul says in Acts 24, there shall certainly be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. John 5:28, Jesus says, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tomb shall hear his voice, all. Shall come forth those who did good deeds to a resurrection of life, and those who committed evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. So eternal life is more than just living forever. Because all people get to live forever. So then what is it? Eternal life is life in the Son of God. It is His life poured into the life of the believer when they are born again by the Spirit. Remember the whole idea, where does eternal life even start in the dialogue and language of Jesus? It's in John chapter 3 with that guy named who? Nicodemus. Remember? And what did Jesus tell Nicodemus? He said, you must be born again. You must be born of the Spirit. Spiritual rebirth is an absolute necessity for entering the kingdom of God and receiving this gift of eternal life. Jesus comes to us and sets us free from our sin and our bondage and gives us this gift of eternal life. He comes to us. We don't get to know God until he makes himself known to us first. Grace comes first before knowing God. He must come to us and make himself knowable. He must open up our blind eyes to see. Paul says this in Galatians 4.9, Now that you know God, or rather to be known by God, and isn't something when you read all the Old Testament and even in, you see how God always came to his people. He always comes first. After Adam and Eve sinned, where did they do? They went and hid. Who came to them? God. When Cain uh, was, you know, gave a bad sacrifice and he, God knew he was going to probably kill his brother, he came to him first. God always comes. He speaks for He has to be the one that does the initiative. I love this prophecy from Jeremiah. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God. And they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and his brother saying, No, the Lord... For they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sins no more. Isn't that beautiful? They shall know me. Why? Because he will show himself to us. The eternal life that Jesus says in John 10.10, I came that you may have life and have it more abundantly. Eternal life in Christ is abundant life. That word life is a Greek word zoe, which includes both physical and spiritual life. For you see, all of life is derived from God. Every day, think about it, we exist, we live. Like Paul said, in him we what? Live, we move, we have our being, our existence. Everyday life comes from God. And life in Christ, because he reveals himself to us is an abundant life. When does eternal life begin? Kind of a trick question. Well, it began, really, before the foundation of the world, right? Because we saw in Ephesians what he called his own before the foundation of the world. But in our time and space, where we live and walk and breathe, it's when we're born again by the Spirit. In other words, we don't have to wait for eternal life. It's not like, okay, I accept Christ, I have eternal life, and it... The eternal life clock kicks off uh, after I die. Eternal life starts now. We are living on this side. In fact, we're, Christ is seated in the heavenlies, it says, and when we fellowship and we worship, we're there with him. It starts right now. We don't have to wait. Notice what John says, and this is in his first epistle, First John, not the Gospel of John. And this is the testimony That God gave us eternal life. And this life is in His Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. Life is in the Son of God. I hope you know this morning that you have eternal life. Jesus was reminding his disciples in that prayer in the upper room why he came, and they, he came for them, and they had eternal life. But Jesus says something interesting in the prayer. He gives us kind of, like I said, a definition. I mean, it says, and this is eternal life. Okay, what is it? That you know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ... In whom you have sent. There it is. Knowing God and knowing Jesus is eternal life. Since knowing is a big part of the definition of eternal life, I think we should explore it just a little bit more. Uh, some of you may have read uh, J.I. Packer's book, Knowing God. How many have read J.I. Packer's? J.I. Packer sold over a million copies in North America alone. I remember. Vividly reading it uh, my sophomore year in college with a bunch of other guys doing a Bible study. And it made quite an impact on me. In fact, I would go far to say in the library with 10 books, knowing God should be in your 10 books. Just that good of a book. And if you don't have it, we have a couple copies uh, in our library that you can get. So Packer asks the question, what is the best thing in life? Bringing more joy, delight, and contentment than anything else. The answer knowledge of God. Now, the prophet Jeremiah says something similar when he says, but let him who boasts in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For these things I delight, declares the Lord, because we understand and know him. God is pleased, delighted when we know him. What does that mean? Well, to know somebody, first off, you got to start with the basics, right? You got to know about them. You've Got to know something about them. Uh, so how do we get to know God? How do we get to know about God? Well, he has spoken to us by his word, right? The Bible tells us who God is, and it tells us who we are, people dead in our sins and trespasses, tells us we need a Savior, and tells us how wonderful He is, but sadly, many people don't know much about Him, even as Christians sometimes. But we need to learn more about Him. How do we do that? Well, Solomon provides uh, some really instructive words. He says, my son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments within you, Make your ear attentive to wisdom and incline your heart to understanding. Yes, if you go out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it as hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord. And here it comes, and find the knowledge of God. A lot of action verbs in there, folks. Receive, treasure, make, incline, call out, raise your voice, seek it like silver, search for like hidden treasure. There needs to be effort on our part about God and who He is, His character. About Jesus and His salvation. About the work of His Holy Spirit. The whole Trinity needs to be involved in this endeavor. J.I. Packer in his book says, The most excellent study for expanding the soul is the science of Christ and him crucified and the knowledge of the Godhead in the glorious Trinity. Think of that uh, one hobby or subject or sport or anything that you really like, right? You try to learn as much about it as you can, don't you? Maybe a a certain author you like to read, and maybe a certain sport you like to participate in, it may be music, uh, any hobby. I had a friend, he loved uh, classic cars, he, uh, roadsters, and he could tear them apart, put them back together again, and he would, I'd be over his house on a Saturday, and he would be telling me everything about it, and you know, of course, my eyes are glossing over, you know. But why did he do that? Because he loved it. He, he was consumed by that. Well, that's how we need to be about our study of God. There needs to be a love for it. Study theology, read good books, listen to podcasts and sermons, go to a Bible study, get to know more about God. Jonathan Edwards, great uh, Puritan uh, theologian, North America, probably the greatest in North America, said this, this is interesting. He said, the more you have a rational knowledge of divine things, the more opportunity will there be when the Spirit shall be breathed into your heart to see the excellencies of these things and to taste the sweetness of them. His point is, the more we fill our minds and when the Spirit Spirit needs stuff to work with, right? Needs material to work with. And the more material we have, the more He opens it up to us. And it's like, Wow. Well, this statement leads into my second point of uh, application. Knowing Christ is more than knowing about God. It's really, truly knowing the Son of God. The devil knows about God. The demons know about God. You believe there was one God, good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. James says, James chapter 2, verse 19. It's more about the knowing about him. This is being known by him and knowing him. You know, we can't really get to know another person well if we don't spend much time with them. We can know about them. We can know some general characteristics and qualities, but you don't really get to know someone until you spend that time With them. This word know in uh, our passage has a much deeper meaning. It suggests a mutual uh, experience and exchange. Knowing Christ is not simply knowing something about Him, but having a personal knowledge of Him. It is a relationship that is experienced. This is what the disciples had with Jesus in the upper room. And this is what we have. As believers, when we accept and confess Christ as our Lord and Savior, God is all about relationships with us. You, look, you, you just see a like a, a thread that goes through the whole Bible about He's wanting a people for Himself. And if you confess Christ today, he, you're part of His people, you're part of His family, you're part of Him. Come to get to know Him more. Get to know Him more. So how can we turn our knowledge about God into knowledge of God? Packer, again, in his book says that we should turn each truth that we learn about God into a meditation before God, leading to prayer and praise to God. We apply great energy and earnestness getting to know Jesus. Can we cry out with the Apostle Paul when he said, I love this, he says, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing you, Jesus Christ my Lord, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. All right, final point. This is to me is really, the, I think, the exciting point we talk about eternal life. You know, remember earlier I said that eternal life is more than just uh, living for eternity. But it is still that, living for eternity. But why will we need to live for eternity? Well, here's one thought. Because we will need an eternity to explore and learn and love the depths of our eternal triune God. We will be forever students, ever learning about our blessed Savior. And there will be no end because he is eternal and inexhaustible. And think about this. We will have a new mind and heart, unobstructed by the biases of sin. You know, our minds were impacted by the fall and blinded by the God of this world. Now we will see clearly one day. I'm going to be much smarter, and so will you. I hope I'll be able to read more than 30 pages in one setting. (laughs) I tell my children I wish I could switch places with them now. I would do it differently. I would read more, learn more, pay attention more. Uh, Right now, I'm going back to reading the classics of literature that I never read before. I have a desire. It's funny, I'm getting old, and I have a desire now to know more, experience more. Think about that one subject that you loved. Think about it. And having an eternity to explore it and learn about it. Now think about our God. Eternal life is living the discovery of God. It is an eternal knowledge of him. We start it now and we go on through eternity. I love Paul in Romans 11. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. We will need an eternity to plumb the depths of those riches and that wisdom and that knowledge of God. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face now I know in part, then I shall fully know. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you sent. Do you know him? I hope so. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that You sent your Son to give us eternal life. We thank you, Lord, that we can enjoy that fellowship, that knowledge now. And Lord, we recognize that many times we don't pursue that as we should. Lord, give us a greater hunger and thirsting for your word, for your truth, for who you are. And Lord, if there's someone here today that does not know you, I pray that you would make yourself known to them, Lord, today. That they can begin this journey of eternal life. I thank you for all those that are here that are experiencing it now, Lord. Let it be richer and fuller. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.